You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. How is everyone doing this morning? Man, it has been so good already to worship, uh, to celebrate communion together um, as a community. And like Josh said, we're moving into a new part of our series uh, today where we, where we move from talking about sin and the fall into God's plan for redemption, which is my favorite part. And so I've been really excited for uh, this new section of the series. But before we jump into uh, the teaching this morning... I, like many of you, and this has been kind of across social media this past week, am am very heavy-hearted as I just kind of look at what's happening in our world, and specifically in Ukraine right now. Uh, We spent some time as a staff and volunteer team last Sunday before service just praying for Ukraine, praying for the church in Ukraine, and uh, I'll be honest, I don't know how you can look at a situation like Ukraine and deny the reality of sin in our world. It is a very dark situation, and yet there is a church there that is vibrant. I know people who have done a lot of ministry in Ukraine, and so I wanted, even just before we jump into the teaching this morning, to just spend a moment of time in prayer for the church in Ukraine, for for leaders around the world as they kind of weigh a response to the situation, Uh, because I believe one of the best, most active things we can do in a time like this is to pray for our brothers and sisters who are over there right now. And so I asked um, our executive pastor, Blake Hicks, um, we're part of a family of churches called the Zero Collective, and Blake is going to come up and uh, he's going to just lead us in prayer for just a moment here uh, for the church in Ukraine in that situation. So thank you, sir. Yeah. Thanks, Brad. Uh, Yeah, I don't know if if you know a little bit of history of Ukraine, but uh, it would be probably uh, good for you to take a look at that. if you didn't know, Ukraine is kind of like the Bible Belt of the Soviet Union uh, back in the old days when it was. So if you think of like the Bible Belt in the USA, uh, Ukraine was that for there. So there's an aggression to it. The church there has always been persecuted. Uh, so this is nothing new to them, but the things that are happening right now are, are just really stifling. And so um, it's hard to know how to pray uh, for Ukraine. And I, I think we talked about that. And uh, where, where do you even begin? So. Um, I'm just going to give you three areas where we can pray for them, okay? So first one, um, just praying for the protection uh, and safety of the Ukrainian citizens in the military. Uh, the second one, I'd love to pray for the church, uh, the Ukrainian church, just as they try to figure out how to care for their members, how to care for their... I mean, can you imagine if that was happening here today? That would be... That'd just be so foreign to all of us, to have tanks, to have people aggression towards us while we're meeting for church. There's people who met last week for church who aren't meeting this week for church because of this. That's, that's hard to take in. And last, I just want to pray for, um, and you know, I, I, <laughs> this seems a little weird, but I want to pray that God would put a stop to the Russian aggression, and I would want to pray that he changes Vladimir Putin's heart. Mm-hmm. Okay? It says to pray for our enemies, and so we're going to do that. So 
Uh, if you'll just join me in prayer, in prayer, let me again first pray for the safety of the people of uh, Ukraine. So, Lord, we ask that you would put a hedge of protection around the people right now, Lord, that are facing this aggression towards them that they didn't plan on, that they didn't really have a part in that's being forced upon them. And I'm sure there is a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety, um, a lot of trepidation, Lord, as to what tomorrow holds. So, Lord, I just pray that you would put your arms around the Ukrainian people right now, Lord, and that they would feel your peace and that they would know that you are their God. And, Lord, that they themselves would place their trust in you. For right now, Lord, they don't know where to place their trust, but I pray, Lord, that they would place their trust in you. And, Lord, second, I just pray for the church there in uh, Ukraine. I pray, Lord, that you would raise up the leaders that need to be and that the pastors of these churches would be comfort to the people. But the church would respond in such a way, Lord, that it would grow through this. We know through strife, Lord, that your church tends to grow through these, these things. So I pray, Lord, uh, that the faith in you would grow during this time, that the Ukrainian people who don't know you would turn to you uh, for their hope. And I pray, Lord, that your name would be magnified even during this atrocity. And lastly, Lord, I just pray for the heart of Vladimir Putin, Lord. We know you can turn around hearts. We've seen it here at New Life. We've seen it at all of our Zero Collective churches, that you turn people's lives. You do a 180 in it. And so we're asking for that right now. And Lord, that you would just invade this man's soul and that you would put a stop to this aggression. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to pray for that church. And we ask, Lord, that it wouldn't just be a time in our service right now, but it'd be throughout the week that all of us would lift up this country to you. I pray this in your mighty name and all God's people said. Amen. 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 Thank you, sir. Um, and just a quick note, even before we jump into the teaching, uh, I don't really know how to pivot towards this announcement, but um, we, uh, we do have the cardboard sled contest still happening after church. A lot of people, yeah, I know, that was like a, whoop, <laughs> talk about 180s, right? Um, man. So we do have a cardboard sled contest still happening after church, and this is uh, to raise kind of uh, funds for the essential store that we have in our church, and there is snow on the middle school hill still, so there may not be snow in here. I was just there last night. There's plenty of snow for sledding, so uh, still plan to come out 1 p.m. today to the middle school hill. Um, yeah, that was a horrible pivot. <laughs> All right, now we're officially jumping into the teaching uh, this morning. So December 23, 2021 has got to be one of the most significant days in my entire life. Like this year, I'm celebrating 10 years of marriage, and of course, there's the day my kids were born, but all of these are a match for what happened on December 23rd, 2021. It was the official grand opening of Mr. Car Wash in Byron Center. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> Now, here's the deal. I live on a dirt road. And so when you're paying, you know, $10 to $15 per car wash, and your car literally gets trashed by the mud an hour later when you go drive on your dirt road, it's painful, isn't it? It is painful to pay per car wash when you live on a dirt road, especially this time of year when it's like super wet and there's potholes in the dirt road and it's just like, a mud war every time we drive down the dirt road. But 
now that Mr. Car Wash has opened, I now have a fancy new subscription for a car wash. And so I can drive down that dirt road with confidence and with speed and with a total peace that my car is going to get trashed. And what can I do? I can just turn right back around and go get another car wash anytime I want. And it's next to Starbucks, so, th so that's good. Here's the thing. The reason it doesn't phase me like it used to that my car gets so trashed so easily is because there is no ongoing cost to getting a car wash. Yes, there's a subscri subscription fee, but who thinks about that? There's no like immediate day-to-day -day cost to getting my car washed. So I'm not spending 10 to $15 every time I go back only to have my car trashed. Again, there is no cost. And that's a great thing for a car wash, but that is a horrible way to approach the Christian life with God. And unfortunately, it's a way a lot of Christians approach life with God. Like maybe I was saved, and yet I find myself in this moment still addicted to sin patterns that I haven't experienced any kind of freedom from. But what's the big deal? It's, it's been paid for. There's no cost to it. It's like the passage that Paul talks about, shall we continue sinning so that grace may increase. Like, it's already been paid for. It doesn't really matter what I do from this point forward. There's no cost that I'm experiencing to my sin. Or, or maybe you have a faith in Jesus that just says, Jesus exists to affirm me exactly as I am, exactly where I am. Like, Jesus accepts me where I am right now, but it never has occurred to me that maybe Jesus loves me too much to leave me where I am. And so there's no cost to following Jesus. It's, it's separated in our minds like a subscription car wash. Or maybe you've been a Christian your whole life, as long as you can remember, and you've come to a place where you value comfort and safety over sacrifice. That in, in your mind, your faith is private and convenient and cheap, and it should leave, lead to making your life easier. And so we end up with what theologians call this idea of cheap grace. There's a, a theologian who lived in Nazi Germany named Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and he led the church's resistance to Nazis. And this is what Diedrich Bonhoeffer says about this kind of car wash mentality to faith. He says this. He says, grace without price Grace without cost is cheap grace. The essence of cheap grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Just like a car wash subscription. And as we move into this movement, this third movement of redemption, the theme that I want to circle around, the theme that I want to get into our heads, into our hearts this morning is this one right here, that true transformation comes from knowing the true cost of redemption. True transformation comes from knowing the true cost of redemption. If you take notes, that would be a great thing to write down this morning. 
Today, as we look into this idea that true transformation comes from knowing the cost of redemption, I want to look at a story in the Old Testament. This is my favorite story in the Old Testament, and it's one of the lesser-known stories in the Old Testament, but it's the clearest picture we have of the gospel in the Old Testament. In fact, there's a, there's a movie out right now, kind of in theaters, based upon, loosely, very loosely, based upon this story in the Old Testament. It's a movie called Redeeming Love. And this story is the story of the prophet Hosea. Now, Hosea was a prophet in the Old Testament time during the reign of King Jeroboam II, a profoundly evil king. And any time you saw God come to a prophet to speak to him, a prophet played the role of mouthpiece for God's people. And so sometimes the prophet would bring a really hard message of doom. Sometimes prophets would bring messages of encouragement. But every single time God comes to a prophet, it begins by saying, and the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. So the word of the Lord came to Micah or to Joel or to whoever it might be and said, go do this. Like in Jonah's case, it was go to Nineveh, preach repentance to Nineveh. And for Hosea, his story begins no differently than that. His story begins with the word of the Lord coming to Hosea. And if I'm Hosea and the word of the Lord comes to me, I'm kind of wondering, like all the other prophets, what does this mean for my life? Like, like God, do you want me to take this word and go, you know, lay down the truth with King Jeroboam II? Like, like give him a truth bomb. Well, sort of, but not really, Hosea. Okay, God, do you want me to go beat up some evil king? Or write a book. Eh, not exactly, Hosea. I got something else in mind for you to be my mouthpiece. Do you want me to preach a killer sermon? And God's like, not exactly. You want to know what God had in store for Hosea the prophet? Let's take a look together. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom. <laughs> in other words, go marry a prostitute is what he's saying. And to have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. How many times can the pastor say whoredom in one sermon? <laughs> so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. This is not exactly a Sunday school kind of neat package story like we're used to. God comes to Hosea, the prophet, and he is calling him, his calling on Hosea's life is to go marry a prostitute. And if I'm Hosea in this moment, I'm asking God, God, did you, did you wake up on the wrong side of the bed this morning? Like, can I get a different word from the Lord? Like maybe tomorrow when you've gotten a better night's sleep? Like, like if I'm Hosea in this moment, I'm like, God, what are you thinking? Like, like why are you calling me to marry this woman, Gomer? And God's like, you see that woman right there, Hosea? That woman, she's going to break your heart. She's going to betray you. She's going to be unfaithful to you. And I want you, Hosea, to go marry her. And not only that, but you're going to have three kids together, two boys and a girl. And you're going you're gonna to name these kids names meaning punishment, no mercy. And ironically, your last kid's going to be named not mine. <laughs> How ironic is the fact that he's married to a prostitute and he has to name his last kid not mine. Can you imagine that episode of Jerry Springer? <laughs> and so chapter after chapter, 
you see this incredibly broken marriage between Hosea and his prostitute wife, Gomer. And this marriage is used as a metaphor over and over again throughout this book, as a metaphor between the relationship between God and his whore wife, Israel. It's as if God is saying to Hosea, if you want to be my mouthpiece, if you want to understand how I want to speak to my people, I need you to intimately understand the pain that my people are causing me. I need you to intimately understand that sin has a cost and so does redemption at the same time. Because true transformation comes from knowing the true cost of redemption. We've talked over the last couple weeks about how there is a cost to the sinful world that we live in. And every single one of us experience that cost in different ways, but we all experience it. There's a generational cost to the sinful world that we live in. You see over and over again in the Bible, and perhaps in your own families, I know it's true in my family, where what one generation struggles with, whether it's addiction or anger or some kind of pattern, is often passed on to the next generation and passed on and on and on and so forth. There is a cost to living in sin. Or maybe it's not a generational cost, but there's, there's an emotional cost to our sin. Like, we live in an epidemic of depression and anxiety. And what I'm not saying is I'm not saying it is a sin to be depressed. I'm not saying it's a result of your own personal sin that you're depressed. What I am saying is that depression and anxiety and the mental health crisis in our world is evidence of how broken this world that we live in actually is. It's not the way God intended it to be. There's a physical cost to our sin. It is the end of February, and I have already officiated more funerals this year than I did all of last year. There is a physical cost to our sinful world, right? Death is all around us. Disease is all around us. There is a physical cost to our sin. And what we see in the story of Hosea is that Gomer, surprise, surprise, is ultimately unfaithful to Hosea. She cheats on him. She leaves him behind. She leaves him to move in with another lover and then more than one lover. And in chapter 3, like by the time we get to the third chapter of this story, we see Gomer, Gomer being sold into sex slavery. It is a slow progression of unfaithfulness for Gomer. She's either that much in debt that she's selling herself into slavery or she left Hosea to go be with a pimp who is now exploiting her. We don't know exactly but either way, this is a dark and bad situation. Gomer has been unfaithful to Hosea, and Hosea, as you can imagine, is just kind of reeling in this moment. And I want you to watch what God says to Hosea in chapter 3, verse 1. This is what he says. I think this is one of the most stunning chapters in the Old Testament. He says, And the Lord said to me, to Hosea, Go again. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. In other words, God is saying, go love your wife, Gomer. Go again to her. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, which is just a way of saying they love idols. Don't miss that comma. Let's go back to that verse really quick if we can, John. 
Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. And then what is after the comma? Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. And by the way, it's not just talking about Israel. It's foreshadowing all of us. Like, go again. Love this woman who has betrayed you. Love this woman who has broken your heart. Love this woman who has let you down, who has cheated on you. Go love her again, just like God has loved his unfaithful people. Like, if I'm Hosea, can you imagine what that walk would have been like to go pursue his wife, Gomer? Like, can you imagine the shame he would have felt walking to go get her? Like, where do you even have to go if you're Hosea to go get Gomer in that situation who's being sold into slavery? Probably to the parts of town that you're told not to go to. Probably to some red light districts. Like, what will people think when they see an upstanding Jewish man like Hosea go get his whore of a wife from that side of town? What will people think? This is a huge cost to Hosea to go do this. And then he finds her. And I want you to watch what happens here. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Wait a minute. She's already your wife. Like, why, why, Hosea, do you have to buy her back? What kind of twisted, unjust story is this that the one who you have been faithful to, Hosea, has been unfaithful to you, and you have to go and you have to buy her back? It is a grave injustice against Hosea. It's also a grave injustice against Gomer. What would she have been like when Hosea found her? Beaten, bruised, shamed. We know this would have been a public spectacle of selling someone like this. Like what would this scene have been like? Such a broken, ugly scene with such high cost. But I want to remind you again that true transformation comes from knowing the true cost of redemption. You see, the going rate to emancipate a prostitute in Hosea's time would have been 30 shekels. Does anybody remember how much he paid that we just read? 15 and some barley. So Hosea is coming, and he is offering 15 shekels to free and to emancipate Gomer. It is half the amount that it costs to do this. Why? Because scholars agree that 15 shekels was probably all he had to offer. That I picture Hosea purchasing Gomer's redemption, scraping together every single ounce of what he had, looking under the couch cushions and in the cup holders and behind the TV stand, looking for every coin that he could find, scraping it all together. How much did it cost to rescue the one who had betrayed him? Everything he had! everything. Why? Because true transformation comes from knowing the true cost of redemption. And friends, there is always a high cost to God's redemption story. Always. 
People will often ask me, why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Why did the cost have to be so high? Because God is not interested in cheap, shallow, surface-level redemption in your life. He's not interested in just scratching the surface so that you can move through this life just kind of still wounded and still angry at the world. There's a cost. And for Hosea... It wasn't just an economic cost. Like, it wasn't just scraping together every penny he had to go free his wife who betrayed him. For Hosea, there was also a social cost. What would Hosea's Jewish neighbors have thought of this spectacle? Not only did he marry a prostitute, but then he's shamed by her, and he has to go and kind of dismiss all kind of cultural honor to go buy her back again. Like, Hosea in this culture had every right to divorce his wife to keep his honor and his shame. What would the Jewish neighbors have thought? Like, can you imagine the whispers of church people? Like, you know what Hosea's doing over there? We should gossip, I mean, pray for him in our small group. There is a high cost to Hosea's price of redemption, not just a social cost, but there's an emotional cost as well. Imagine that ride home for Hosea and Gomer. (laughs) Imagine the conversations they would have had as they returned home after he just emancipated her. In fact, we get a glimpse into it in verse 3 here. This is what it says. Hosea says to Gomer, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. What this is saying here is their story isn't one of just kind of happily ever after. What I love about the Bible is it's not a Disney movie. <laughs> like, it's not just like, I'm, I haven't seen Redeeming Love, but I imagine the movie like probably has a neater ending than this story does. The Bible's messy. Redemption is messy. And for Hosea and Gomer, Hosea comes to her and he says, you've hurt me. And if we're going to rebuild this thing together, it's going to take some time, and it's going to take some commitment. Now, I want to be careful, because this story is not marriage advice, okay? Like, this is not meant to be a template for when there's infidelity in marriage. It's not meant to be read that way. It's meant to be a metaphor for how God loves the world, how God loves people. But if you've gone through the pain of a fractured relationship, Like, if you personally experienced the just scarring of infidelity in a marriage or infidelity in a family, and you've gone through the painful process of rebuilding that marriage, rebuilding that family, rebuilding trust, you know that redemption stories do not come without great cost. You know the pain of that intimately. And that's the gut-level kind of visceral reaction that the author of Hosea wants us to get out of this story. That Hosea's story is a foreshadowing of the cost of redemption that God would pay for you and me on the cross. That Jesus Christ is the true and better Hosea, who hung on a cross to purchase to purchase back those of us who have betrayed him, which is every single one of us. 
That true transformation comes from knowing the true cost of redemption. I love how 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19 describes this. This is what Peter says about the cost. He says, knowing that you were ransomed or redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. This isn't a 15 shekels situation. No, you were bought with something much higher cost than that. But you were bought with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, true transformation comes from knowing the true cost of redemption. To the woman in our church, whose entire life has been marked by spiritual warfare, by demonic presence in her, her very body, who surrendered her life to Christ at our Christmas services this last year and is growing and wrestling in a small group of women on Monday nights, she understands that true transformation does not come unless you know the true cost of redemption. To the guy in our church who six months ago was an atheist wanting nothing to do with God and then he went to a men's retreat, men's retreat, and he gave his life to Christ, drastically transformed, and had to leave behind old ways, had to even leave behind old friends, and is now getting plugged into our church community, volunteering and growing in his newfound faith. You better believe he understands that true transformation does not come without knowing the true cost of redemption. Here's the kicker. Like if Christ's costly story of redemption stops with just your own personal forgiveness, your own personal healing, your own personal freedom, and that's where it ends, you do not yet have God's vision for a redemption story in this world. Because to be a Christian means that in some way, shape, or form, we understand the cost of redemption. That our redemption story is not just a car wash subscription, one and done, kind of forget it, kind of leave it behind. But we, our redemption story is something to be received and something to be lived out for the sake of the world. Which means that we are called on some level to incarnate the spirit of Hosea and more importantly incarnate the spirit of Jesus in the world that we live in when it comes to redemption. And this story will get messy Jesus promised that following him would be costly. Like, you can take that promise to the bank. He promised that it would cost you because true transformation comes from knowing the true cost of redemption. And so here's just a couple of things to think about for your life. Are you consumed with what other people think about you on a daily basis? Does that own you? Does that control you? Like, are you obsessed with maintaining some kind of perception of perfection? Or are you willing to let God break and expose some things in your life and heart that may be very painful to walk through, may be very painful for other people to see, but actually display his redemption story to the world? Are you willing to get a little uncomfortable for his redemption story, even if it means people talk about you behind your back? Even if it means people twist your story? Here's another one. Is there someone or someones I typically avoid 
because I know investing in relationship with them will cost me deeply? Or am I asking God actively for opportunities to be with the people the world often ignores? I see this meme going around a lot among Christian um, circles, and I'm sorry if you share this meme. I don't mean to shame you. That's not my intention. But the meme says this. It's a Toby Mac meme, and it says, if it costs you your peace, it's too expensive. Now, inherently, sure, I, I get the spirit behind that, but we have settled for such a vision of following Jesus that is just costless, that is so cheap and so inexpensive that we as Christians, if it costs you too much, it's too expensive. And yet the promise of Jesus is that it will cost you. It will cost you worldly peace. It will cost you comfort. And so this leads me to the last question here. Do I avoid suffering by cutting corners at work or trying to control every situation I'm in or avoiding conflict altogether or... Am I willing to embrace hardship in this life, knowing that it is the path God has chosen to invite the world into his redemption story? And I am just struck by the church in Ukraine right now, as we've already talked about. Like, our biggest tension on a Sunday morning is whether or not we want to hit snooze a few more times and skip church. The tension that the church in Ukraine is living right now is one of deep and great costs, and they are experiencing the grittiness and the rubber-hits-the-road nature of what it means to actually follow Jesus the way Jesus intended. If following Jesus is costing you nothing, then you are not following Jesus. You're not. Because his promise and his invitation is always to come and die that you may live. Die to yourself, die to your own desires, die to your own wants, die to your own agenda, die to your need to prove yourself. And his promise is that death always leads to a resurrection. This is the hope of redemption because true transformation comes from knowing the true cost of redemption. Hosea understood this. Jesus understood this. There's a woman named Sister Helen Prejean, and uh, she's a nun who did a lot of work in New Orleans and in, in different housing districts and communities in New Orleans. And uh, one day she was working in a housing site there, and she got an invitation to become a pen pal with an inmate in Louisiana State Penitentiary. And uh, this guy's name is Matthew Poncelot. He's a, he's a convicted killer. And uh, nobody wanted to be pen pals with this guy. Nobody. Him and his brother were convicted of brutally murdering two teenagers in a field after their homecoming game. And so nobody wanted anything to do with him. And yet he maintained his entire time in prison, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. It was my brother who did this. I am innocent. And reluctantly, Sister Helen agreed to become his pen pal. And what she discovered very quickly is that he was not a good man. That he was offensive on every level. He was a racist, Hitler-loving bigot. That he used the B word regularly to describe and talk about women. That he fantasized about blowing up government buildings. I mean, this was a man who evokes no sympathy. And yet here Sister Helen is living in this tension of the cost of redemption. 
And so nevertheless, she holds on to her convictions and she persists in her relationship with him. She continues to write him. She continues to build relationship with him. She meets him eventually. They begin talking and there's this relationship that's forming. And while she's forming a relationship with him, she's also building a friendship and forming a relationship with his victim's families. And so she's caring for and she's loving them. Can you imagine the tension that that would create in a person living between those two worlds? And so these families of the victims, understandably so, start to say, hey, like, if you're going to befriend us, you can't befriend our kid's killer. Like, this is just not how it works. And then the media gets a hold of it, and they start attacking and destroying Sister Helen's character. And her fellow nuns are like, what are you doing? Like, you, you can't be friends with this guy. You can't befriend him. Do you know who he is? And she doesn't stop. She continues. Right up until his death, his execution. And as Matthew is led to his execution chamber only minutes before his death, she asks him one Last time, Matthew, do you confess and take responsibility for Loretta and David's killings? For the first time in his life, Matthew looks in her eyes and he breaks down in a puddle of tears and admits his guilt for the first time. And he quietly says to Sister Helen, thank you for loving me. I've never had anybody love me before. And this is what Sister Helen wrote. This is her words about this time together. She said, That walk was the first time I ever touched him. I looked down and saw his chains dragging across the gleaming floor. His head was shaved, and he was dressed in a clean white T-shirt. When they took him back in the execution chamber, I leaned over and kissed his back. I then told him to watch my face as he dies. That way, the last thing he will ever see before he dies is the face of someone who loves him. Sister Helen understands the cost of redemption. She understands that love with a cost is what transforms. Why? Because true transformation comes when we truly understand the cost of redemption. And I will tell you this, I have zero interest in being a church that just tells kind of neat, bow-tied, easy redemption stories. Because none of our redemption stories look like that. Our redemption stories are gritty, and they are messy. And they are sometimes, like I said, two steps forward and one step backward. And sometimes we trip, and sometimes we have to help each other up. And that is the beauty of the community of the church, that we are walking with each other on the messy road to Jesus together. That when I look at my brother or my sister, and I can celebrate, and I can get excited about the person God is turning them into, the person they are becoming in Jesus, and say, I know you're not yet where you want to be, but I see who God is turning you into, and it makes me so excited, brother. Or where we can look and we can see somebody who trips and who falls, and we come up alongside them and we say, I have tripped and I have fallen more times than I can count. Let me help you up and let's continue this journey towards Jesus. Friends, redemption is a messy process. 
And the Bible does not sugarcoat it. The Bible is not a happily ever after Disney story where everything's kind of buttoned up and neat. Why do we treat it like that in the church so much? Can we just be honest? Can we be honest that our stories are very messed up sometimes? And that what God is doing in us, we don't always fully and completely understand. That for some of us, our stories are marked by a ton of shame, a ton of hurting. What I love about Sister Helen's story and why it is so powerful to me is because everything in me wants to resist it and say, you befriended a guy like that, Sister Helen? And what I'm reminded of every single time I hear that story is that Jesus befriended a guy like me. And he befriended people like you. And that is just as miraculous and messy and gritty of a story as Hosea pursuing his wife Gomer or a sister Helen pursuing Matthew Poncelot. So as we close today, I just want to close with the simple question here. What did God's plan of redemption cost him? The answer, <laughs> a lot. What is it costing you? What is his redemption story costing you? Is it costing you something in your workplace? Is it costing you something in your family relationships? Is it costing you some pride? Is it costing you financially? Following Jesus, this redemption story is extremely costly. It is not cheap. It is an expensive story, and every single one of us have been invited into it, and the promise is that in that we experience the, the most abundant life. I would love if I could, if we could just close in prayer together. And then we're going to respond uh, with one of my favorite songs, No Longer Slaves. So let's pray together. Jesus, I'm just personally reminded that you didn't choose the easy path to redemption for us. You had time after time and opportunity after opportunity in your life to circumvent the suffering of the cross, to take the easy way out, to have the angels come down and save you or, or give in to the temptation of the devil in the wilderness, to have all the kingdoms of the world handed to you, but every single opportunity you were given, you took the way of the cross, the most costly path to redemption. And so, Jesus, may we not treat this story flippantly. May we not come to this story and, and make it cheaper than it is, but, God, may we understand how deeply costly the story of grace and mercy and redemption actually is. And may that influence who we are as a church, who we are as husbands, who we are as wives and, and moms and kids and students and salespeople and electricians and teachers, in every area of our life, may that costly redemption story have a drastic impact in our lives. 
So God, this morning, we respond by just worshiping you, by giving you all of the praise and all of the glory to the only one who is worthy of our worship, Jesus Christ. And it's his, his holy name that we pray. And everybody said, amen.